You're listening to audio from Shandon Baptist Church. If you'd like to check out more resources from us, please visit our website at shandon.org. would take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to be in the Old Testament today, 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to read together verses 8 through 12. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. Well, while you're turning, I want to let you know that next week we're excited to kick off a brand new worship message series, Reason for Hope. And if you've been thinking about coming back to church, man, it's always a good time to be with us. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're looking in. But we also have room for you. Love for you to come at the 9 o'clock service. 11 o'clock is looking a little full. Thank you, college students. So glad to have you here. Grateful for your faithfulness in worship. Hey, our practice at Shandon is to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And so whether you're watching us online or you're here in the room with us, let me invite you to stand as we read God's Word together today. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. The Bible says, He, referring to King Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel the prophet. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What a dramatic story we get to look at this morning. So let me invite you to pray with me now as we begin. Father, we're grateful for the truth and power of your word. And Father, it's clear in this passage, in this story, in Saul's life, that you have a word for us. So Lord, may we be attentive to what your spirit has for us today, and may we respond in faith, recognizing that we live our lives for your glory and your glory alone. So Father, thank you for being with your people, for speaking to us. And now may we listen and be transformed. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Thank you for being standing. You may be seated. Well, I know any time there's a different speaker, there's a little bit of tension in the room, so I thought I would break the tension this morning. You're hearing a different voice, a different cadence. By telling you a little bit of a story, it seems that a few years ago, a college co-ed sent her parents an email to update them on her first semester at a university several hundred miles away from home. And so her email to her parents reads like this. Dear mom and dad, since I left for college, I have been remiss in writing and I am sorry for my thoughtlessness and not having written sooner. I will bring you up to date now, but before you read any further, I would encourage you to sit down. If you're not sitting down now, please find a chair. 
Great start, huh? Well, she continues. Well, I'm getting along pretty well now. The skull fracture and concussion I got when I jumped out of the window of my dormitory when it caught fire shortly after my arrival here is pretty well healed. I only spent two weeks in the hospital and now I can see almost normally and only get sick headaches once a day. Fortunately, the fire was witnessed by an attendant at the gas station near the dorm and he was the one who called 911. He also visited me in the hospital and since I had nowhere to live because of the fire, he was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment with him. It's really a small apartment, but it's kind of cute. He's a very fine boy and we have fallen deeply in love. I don't have an exact date yet, but we're planning to get married later this year once he gets permission from his parole officer. (laughs) Well, the good news is the email doesn't end there. She continues, mom and dad, now that you are up to date, I wanna tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a skull fracture or concussion. There's no boyfriend and I am not engaged. However, I am getting a D in American history and an F in chemistry and I wanted you to see those grades in their proper perspective. (laughs) Your loving daughter, Sharon. Sharon may have gotten an F in chemistry, but she gets an A in psychology, right? So let me just say to this group, no, don't do that to your parents. Don't ever do that. Well, whether we recognize it or not, we are all like Sharon's parents because today's news and headlines are presented to us in order to manipulate us into thinking, feeling, and even acting in a certain way. It seems that we're not only being told in our world what's going on, but also how to interpret it, how to feel about it. I think we can all agree that today we live in a world that believes what's happening is more important than what's true. That what's happening in the world is more important than what's true. But the fact of the matter is how you respond to what's happening in your life actually reveals what is true to you. So this morning, I don't wanna focus on the headlines. I don't wanna focus on the news, global pandemic, civil unrest, social activism, political divisiveness, the disruption of the college football season, good grief, seriously. Let's get beyond the headlines this morning and explore what may be going on inside of you. Because if you look at the dashboard of our culture today, all the indicator lights are flashing. Anxiety, anger, depression, divorce, suicide, it's all on the rise and the church is not insulated from any of it. Let's be sure that we recognize that. So perhaps in the last few weeks or the last few months, you found yourself losing faith ever so slightly. Maybe losing faith in people, institutions, our country, the church, and for some of you, maybe you've lost a little faith in God. Well, if that's true of you, then let's explore why that may be happening to you, and most importantly, what you can do about it. 
So to help us get to some answers, let me set up the text that we read just a few moments ago. As you may know, King Saul was Israel's very first king, and in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, Saul assembled a small expeditionary force of 3,000 men. 2,000 were assigned to Saul, 1,000 were assigned to Saul's son, Jonathan. Well, while stationed in a little town called Gibeah, Jonathan attacked and defeated a small garrison of Philistines, Israel's nemesis. Well, the Philistines retreated and they mustered a counterattack with a massive force. And verse five says, the Philistine troops were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Well, as you can imagine, fear gripped Saul's army and they began to defect in mass. And the Bible tells us that Saul made his way to a little town across the Jordan called Gilgal. Now, you may ask, why Gilgal? What's so important and strategic about this little town of Gilgal? Well, three chapters earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 10, the prophet Samuel had identified a younger Saul as Israel's first king. And having done so, he told Saul, go to Gilgal and wait. Do nothing for an entire week, just wait. And Samuel promised to come after seven days and offer the burnt offering and the peace offering on Saul's behalf. And this was effectively a ceremony to confirm and validate the selection of Saul as Israel's very first king. And so most scholars believe that in chapter 13, when Saul fled to Gilgal, he was effectively going to the place of his spiritual coronation. It was a safe house for him. It was his spiritual Alamo in the face of the Philistine army. But it's here in verse eight, the passage that we read just a few moments ago, that the story and tragically Saul's life takes a terrible, terrible turn because in these verses, we learned that there was something lodged in Saul's heart, something that caused him to lose faith. And what followed was a watershed moment in his life and in Israel's history. Now, before we get to what happens to Saul, I want to fast forward a bit and draw a line between Saul and another watershed moment in history that is impacting all of us today. You see, 400 years ago, a French philosopher by the name of Rene Descartes published an essay that changed how every one of us think in our culture today. And probably many of you have heard Descartes' most famous idea, his axiom, if you will, and it's this, I think, therefore I am. You've probably seen the t-shirt. You might even own the t-shirt. After this, you're probably going to want to wear it inside out. And here's why. Descartes began with the idea of doubt. He said we should doubt everything, and he sought to answer the question, how can you know anything with certainty? How can you know anything in existence with certainty? So his conclusion, as strange as it sounds, was if I, as an individual, am thinking about my existence, I must exist. If there's a thought, there must be a thinker. Now you know why philosophers are so weird, right? Now you know why. Because you see, prior to Descartes, it was very common and natural for everyone to begin with the idea of God. 
that all of our knowledge and understanding flowed from God. But on this side of Descartes, everything begins with the individual, with the self. And that puts me and that puts you in a place where we not only judge everything around us, but we also judge and evaluate the very idea of God's existence in any worldview associated with him. And that idea has changed everything. It has changed everything. Because in Descartes' worldview, your life is no longer defined vertically in relation to God, it's defined horizontally. And what flows out of that worldview is the belief that the highest good, the greatest good that we can achieve is individual freedom, autonomy, and self-expression. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Now before we place too much blame on Descartes, keep in mind that this very idea was present in the Garden of Eden. Satan, the enemy, presented this worldview to Adam and Eve and effectively saying that God was no longer necessary, that Adam and Eve had the power to become God-like. And so the very first sin was essentially an attempt to destroy our vertical relationship to God and claim equal ground with him. And if there's no vertical relationship to God, then there's no accountability to God. Now here's what's ironic, stay with me for a minute. 90% of Americans, nine out of 10 of your neighbors believe in some kind of higher power. They believe in some kind of higher power, a man upstairs, if you will. But saying that you believe in a higher power is the equivalent of saying something like, may the force be with you. What does that mean anyway? Does that mean you can lift a spaceship out of the swamp? Does that mean that you can tell a soldier what to think and what to do? Nobody really knows. The problem with thinking about a higher power is we have to conclude what its purpose and end is. In other words, what's that power for? And why do we have it? Well, Mark Sayers, who is a pastor and cultural commentator, wrote this. What we're experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of personal will. That is the legacy of a world detached from God, spiritually, rationally, and intellectually. And the social and emotional collateral damage is catastrophic. Now you may be thinking to yourself, Scott, what does all of this have to do with King Saul? Well, I'm really glad you asked because I'm ready to get back to the text. Because you see in verse eight, we find Saul waiting in Gilgal for Samuel the prophet. But with his army scattering, and the enemy mounting an offensive, Saul grew impatient, impatient. And on the morning of the seventh day, he took matters into his own hands and he administered the burnt offering himself. But before he could offer the peace offering, Samuel arrived and their meeting was not cordial in any sense of the word. Samuel simply looked at Saul and said, what have you done? Now, a bit of ceremonial law here so you can understand why there was tension in this moment. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God carefully distinguished the priesthood 
from the kingship. He distinguished the role of the priest and the role of the king. It was a bit of separation between church and state, if you will. There was to be no practicing of politics as religion. The preachers were not to act like politicians and the politicians were not to act like preachers. Can I get an amen on that? (laughs) Thought I might get one from the front row down here. Look, in Israel, there was to be a clear distinction and it was vital that the Israelite kings not usurp or control any of the spiritual or divine prerogatives. So Samuel's question not only flowed from the mandate of the law, but it went straight to the heart of Saul. And in verse 11 and 12, Saul responds. So let's read his response. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you, Samuel, did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You'll notice in there a threefold excuse. He blames three other parties for his disobedience the soldiers who were scattering, Samuel himself who did not show up at the appointed time, Saul said, and also the Philistines who were assembling at Michmash. Having found himself in an extraordinary predicament, Saul simply blamed the people, the timing, and the circumstances of his life. And so he forced himself. One of the reasons we're seeing so much fear and anxiety and anger and depression in our culture today is because we have come face to face with a reality that we would rather not acknowledge. And that's this, we are not in control. We are not in control. And for some, what's worse is we can't save ourselves. And that fact leads us straight to the feet of the cross and straight to Jesus, because that may be where God wants us. But sometimes we're like Saul, aren't we? We just like to seize control of what's going on, push God to the margins, move self to the center, and fixate on controlling the people, the timing, and the circumstances of our lives. And have you ever noticed that when you try to seize control of everything in your life, you only feel more anxious and fearful and sometimes depressed? And when our efforts don't work out the way we want, what happens? Well, we do what Saul did. We start blaming the people around us, the timing and the circumstances. Doesn't it feel like blame has become an Olympic sport in our culture today? And everybody wants a gold medal, it sure seems like. Blame. Do you wanna know why there's such division and toxicity in our culture today? I think it's because we have rejected a foundational biblical idea, and that's the idea of original sin. Sin is not popular to talk about, and we've rejected the idea of sin. But the idea of original sin is literally that every human being is born in and under the penalty of sin, that we're all sinners, 
by birth and by choice. But our culture wants you to believe that you are inherently good. That's the message of our culture. You're good. Well, that's not a biblical idea. Because follow the reasoning that if you're basically good, what happens is that if you're good, then sin and evil and injustice and racism is always out there. If I'm good, by my culture's definition, then the problem is never in here with me, it's always out there with somebody else. And if everybody feels that way, we've got problems. Division, violence, toxicity. You see, Saul believed that the problem, the evil that he was facing somehow was out there. He didn't recognize the own sin in his heart. And so his disobedience flowed from a self-righteous assumption that everybody else was to blame. And so he assumed the role of priest and effectively assumed the role of God. One of the reasons that we need to gather in worship regularly on Sunday morning is to be reminded that we're not God. That we worship God. That we have a vertical relationship with God. And the imprint of the cross upon the church means that we receive grace and we receive mercy and we receive love along its vertical axis, but we give grace and mercy and love along its horizontal axis. That's the imprint of the cross upon the church. You cannot manufacture or engineer your own salvation and Saul needed Samuel to remind him that he could not deliver himself from the Philistine army. And if you've ever grown impatient with God, and I'm sure if you walk with God you have, then you know how easy it is to be tempted to steal from God. Seize control of the circumstances and think you're doing God a favor. And yet God wants for you and for me is to simply wait wait. This week I received an email from a salesman from a software company who's been trying to sell us a cloud platform for file sharing. Now I say that like I know what I'm talking about, but I have no clue what that is. Well, this week's email got my attention because the body of the email said this, Scott, if you're looking for a faster, more secure way to exchange data with eternal partners... Can we find 10 to 15 minutes to chat about our problem? Well, I pushed my laptop away and thought, we are about to change the game at Shandon. This is awesome news. 15 minutes, shoot, I'll give you a whole hour for that one. A whole hour. Now, we laugh about that. Don't worry, I didn't call him. Spell check doesn't catch everything, does it? Well, we laugh about that email, but when life is spinning out of control and you don't know what to do, Isn't that what we really want? A faster, more secure way to exchange data and information with God? Look, waiting in the midst of adversity and difficulty is one of the hardest things you'll ever do in life. And yet we have the promise of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 that says this, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a promise. That is a promise for those who are willing 
to wait. Well, things did not turn out well for Saul. And it's a warning to us. Because if you look at the text, verse 13, Samuel replies to Saul and says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, Samuel says, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Seems a little severe in its judgment of Saul. Well, let's look a little closer because what God wanted in Saul, he found in his successor, King David. And it's the same thing that he seeks in you and me today. Men, women, boys, girls who are seeking after God's own heart for people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. So what does it mean to be someone who is after God's own heart? We certainly can't survey all of David's life, but as we compare the differences between Saul and David, there are two differences that I wanna share with you this morning that give us a clue about what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart. And here's the first one coming from our text today, Saul was a consumer, but David was a contender. Saul was a consumer, but David was a contender. You see, Saul behaved as if the kingdom existed to serve him, but David behaved as if he existed to serve the kingdom. So what about you? If you're a follower of Christ, if you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do you think the church exists to serve you? Do you believe the programs, the worship, the music, and even the staff exist to serve you? Or do you think that you exist to serve the body of Christ and the Christ-given mandate to make disciples of all the nations? And maybe most importantly, do you believe God exists to serve you? Or do you believe you exist to serve and glorify God? Simple question, are you a contender for the faith or are you a consumer of the faith? Saul was a consumer, David was a contender. The second difference between these two, and I love this one, Saul, well he was a grumbler, but David was a groaner. Saul was a grumbler, David was a groaner. Now the Bible uses two words to describe a person's response to adversity and suffering and disappointment and frustration, groaning and grumbling. So let's clarify the differences between the two because they are beautiful. You see, God commends groaning. God approves of groaning, but he forbids grumbling. Groaning is complaining to God, whereas grumbling is complaining to people. Groaning happens in God's face, but grumbling happens behind God's back. You see, the place where people groan is on their knees before God, where they've been driven by adversity 
and suffering, but the people where, place where people grumble is on their feet publicly, where they're free to exaggerate and blame and play the victim. So here's the beauty of David's life, a man after God's own heart. You'll be hard pressed to find one instance in scripture where David grumbled. Now his sins, well, they're well documented, you know them. But he's also a broken man before God. But he never played the victim and he never blamed anyone else for his sin. Read the Psalms over and over again and you'll discover the heart of a man who was on his knees before God begging for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And in this, we discovered that David was a man who had learned that it is more important to be forgiven than it is to be right. And may that be true of us. Men and women who are in full pursuit of God's heart. Because the more we grumble and the more we consume, the further away from God we're gonna feel, just like Saul. So what about your faith? What about your faith? It's in one of two places. It's either in God or it's in you. It's in God or it's in you, and that fear that anxiety, that frustration, that impatience that you're feeling day in and day out, well, that's God's way of letting you know that you're not in control, that you can't save yourself, and that you're living horizontally. And yet, that's not what God wants for you, and that's not what God wants for this church. Unlike Saul, David lived vertically. And his prayer and his song was the Lord, the Lord is my salvation. May that be your song as well. Let's pray together. Father, we know that there is a bit of a heavy spirit in the room because when we learn of the life of Saul, his failure, his rejection of you as his king, we see ourselves in his actions and in his attitude. So Father, we confess to you that we have tried to seize control of the people, the timing, and the circumstances of our lives, and in doing so, we've only created more fear and anxiety for ourselves. So Lord, may the life and example of Saul be one that we pay attention to, that we learn from, and that we're encouraged by. So many in this room and so many watching online have been trying to seize control of their lives for many, many years. And it's only led to more disappointment and frustration. So Lord, I pray for those people today that they would lay it down. That they would realize that you have arrived in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who grants us salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. And may that forgiveness 
penetrate deep into our hearts so that we live vertically before you. Lord, I pray that we would never try to seize control and replace your presence, your power in our lives by our own efforts. And for those who are slowly letting go this morning, I pray that they would find your son, Jesus. And may we as a church help them do so. Father, thank you that you're driving us to our knees. You have us exactly where you want us. Ready to receive from you grace and mercy and peace. So Father, thank you that you're calling people. You're calling us, this church, to be a body who pursues God, pursues you with all of their heart. Father, may we do so out of a love for you and a love for the mission. Father, thank you for granting us this moment in the life of Saul and the truth of the scripture that you presented to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.